Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I share with you a conversation that I had a few months ago with repeat guest Guillermo Angeras. In this conversation, we dive into the topic of math, the history of math, collaboration as a key driver, how to bring more people into the space, and the potential opportunities and downsides of bringing some kinds of math mainstream. But as a bit of a disclaimer, we decided it would be really smart to pair our conversation with a bottle of sake. And while this one starts very clear-headed, it sort of veers into drunk history territory near the end of the episode. Like, I know Pythagoras was from ancient Greece, but for some reason I decided to place him in Alexandria in this episode. And we managed to both mix up astrology and astronomy by the end. Anyway, I digress. I hope you like the episode. I am thinking of doing more like this where we explore people's relationships to math, cryptography, and engineering in some way. Um, but I am curious to hear if you like it. And if not, let me know that too. Uh, we can maybe try to find another place for conversations like this. Now, before we start in, I do want to let you know that the ZK Podcast crew is growing. We are taking on a number of new projects at the moment, and we are looking to hire an additional content producer to join us. I've added the job description for this position to the ZK Jobs Board. ZK Jobs Board is a place where you can find lots of jobs from different teams in the ZK space, not just us. So do check that out in general. Now, for this particular role, the job really requires that you have at least two years of experience working on regular content production. I won't really be looking at CVs that don't have this. And ideally, you would be organized, good at project management, and somewhat familiar with our field, but no need to be an expert on specifically ZK. If you or someone you know fits the bill, please apply. I've added links in the description. I hope to hear from you. Now, Tanya, the podcast producer, will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Anoma. Anoma is a set of protocols that enable self-sovereign coordination. Their unique architecture facilitates efficiently the simplest forms of economic coordination, such as two parties transferring an asset to each other, as well as more sophisticated ones like an asset-agnostic bartering system involving multiple parties without direct coincidence of wants, or even more complex ones such as N-Party, collective commitments to solve multipolar traps, where any interaction can be performed with adjustable zero-knowledge privacy. Anoma's first fractal instance, Namada, is planned for later in 2022, and it focuses on enabling shielded transfers for any assets with a few second transaction latency and near zero fees. Visit anoma.net for more information. That's anoma.net. So thanks again, Anoma. Now here is Anna's interview with Guillermo. Today, I'm here IRL with Guillermo, someone who's been on the show a couple times. Welcome back to the show, Guillermo. Thank you. Yeah, it's kind of weird to do it in person, actually. I think it's the first time we've met IRL, to be fair, For as well. For real. Don't, that's right. That's right. Or not this time, I guess, yesterday, but <laughs> yeah. close enough. Right. So right now, we're in Amsterdam for the DevConnect week. Like I'm in the middle of two events, so I just did the ZKV Cosmos event, and I have the ZK Summit coming up. Guillermo, you just got in. How, yeah. how are you doing? Um, currently subsisting on approximately like five hours of sleep or cumulatively maybe eight hours of sleep 
or something like that over the past few days. And along with the sake we're drinking, I, I'm sure it's going to lead to a very interesting episode. <laughs> Definitely. And our combination of Amsterdam and sake is quite random, but we felt like this would be a good uh, combination for today's episode. Weirdly, our goal here is to have a conversation about math. And this is something that came up, I think a few weeks ago, we were talking about math. And you, you just started to sort of like tell me this philosophy oh, of math. Shit, right. And I was like, maybe this is something worth doing on the show since we <laughs> often talk about math, but we don't necessarily talk about the meta-ness of math. Like we just talk about actual types of math or, right. you know, math comes up a lot. First, let's take a step back though. Even though you've been on the show, what is it? I guess. Three times, times, I think. Maybe. I think it's your fourth. I think it's my fourth. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So people may be familiar with you. Uh, um, some people still believe you're just Tarun's alt, but. Um. You know, it's, it's. I think it's closer to reality than most people would like to believe. All right. Certainly. But why don't you introduce yourself to the um, listeners? I'm Guillermo Jaris. Uh, I guess I, I am this weird fake made up title called head of research at uh, a VC fund called Bain Capital Crypto. And I mostly, you know, sit in a dark corner and do a bunch of math, uh, as I believe is part of my role. Uh, so so I, I unfortunately, uh, or, you know, very appropriately, we're doing this with alcohol, but, you know, have <laughs> thought a lot about the meta-ness of math and all that and whatever that entails. Cool. Um, before you were doing the head of research thing, though, and mm-hmm. when you've been on the show, you've also been producing a lot of like research papers mm-hmm. with our often co-host, Tarun. Um, tell me, what's the rapport there? Like, what, what were you doing before? <laughs> and why does everyone call you Tarun Zalt? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so I guess the, the quick background that most people don't know is that Tarun was actually my boss in 2016 at a weird uh, company called D. Shaw Research that did, uh, essentially did Molecular dynamics, essentially kind of trying to simulate protein folding. Essentially, it built supercomputers for for doing molecular dynamics for chemistry simulations, specifically for protein folding. Um, anyway, so the point is we became friends then. Uh, you know, he left then to go for trading at 2017 or something like that. And then but we just kept on chatting. And in, I believe, 2018, he comes up to me and he's like, hey, I'm building this weird company. It's called Gauntlet. And... Um, you know, we're, we're thinking of doing some stuff with simulating blockchains yes. and kind of thinking through. I, originally at the time, it was um, proof of stake stuff. That's we, right. That's I had right. him so, on the show then. Yeah, exactly. So it was it was. Yeah, it was like questions about like L1 security. And he's like, look, we have these agents. We have to simulate them. And, and it turns out that, you know, I, I know you're doing optimization stuff. Um, so hmm. maybe like you might find something interesting there. Uh, and so I was like, yeah, I like Tarun. I you know, it's a fun person to work with. I've worked with him before. Sure, why the hell not? Let's do it. Uh, and so from there, we started looking into some weird thing called Uniswap. For some reason or another, that came up. We were just very confused as to why some, at the time, some 200-line Viper contract had like, I think, $5 million. And this was late 2018, like about to be early 2019. And we were like, what, what is going on? Like how has, you know, like $5 million for context at the time was a lot of fucking money in a contract. Yeah. Um, and just it, from there, it kind of devolved into, uh, you know, we wrote this paper called an analysis of Uniswap markets, which kind of became popular. And then from there, we just started co-authoring a crap ton of papers together. And it, in fact, 
if I think it's every single paper that we've written since pretty much barring like maybe one or two exceptions has been just like with us and then later with Alex in the title. Cool. So did you know Uniswap? Was this nope. like, were you in crypto? No. So I, I was in crypto a little bit. So actually okay. Tarun originally had told me about Ethereum back in, back when I was his, his intern in DSHA research actually. Uh-huh. And I had some, but I, you know, I wanted to mess with it, but I never did anything. I don't know if I asked you this already, but what was your opinion about it back then? If you can remember. Oh, uh, oh, I remember. Uh, <laughs> let's, just, let's just say uh, crypto is often um, used for things in which cash would have probably made the equivalent replacement. Mm. Buying one, drugs. You know, yeah. yeah. That, that, that's one one of the possibilities <laughs> okay. or something like that, you yeah. know? So so anyway, so that my, my opinion on crypto was, you know, I don't want to hold this thing for longer than I have to. Maybe that's that's the Oh, uh, you want to you want to kind of like get it away. That's right. That's okay. right. That's right. Um, Did you think it was illegal? Did you think of it as No, so I didn't think it was illegal. It was just, you know, uh, at the I mean, time it, it isn't, it wasn't, but it's right, more right. like did you see it as something like, oh, this could be dangerous to me to have or something? Weirdly enough, time. it wasn't that actually. It was um, okay. If you if you remember some amounts of of you know how these sites worked, is you would actually often put like a little extra because of the fact that like crypto would be very volatile. Okay. Right, and so you know you needed to do some. You wanted to pay someone whatever ninety bucks for you know any number of things. Uh, one could imagine that like what happened there is uh, you know the price of Bitcoin would fluctuate enough that you would then have to put an extra in order for you to be able to have the transaction go through and stuff like that. So I was like, if this, you know, I can't even like pay like someone 90 bucks on this thing. Like why would I want to hold on to ah, it? It was almost like because small value transfers just made no sense. That's right. That's right. Which it still is, I mean, kind of, true. Kind of tricky with yeah. the gas fees and stuff to actually, well, at least on Ethereum. Right. I mean, did you just find it unpractical? I, I found it. Yeah. So I was very confused uh, when a year later my mom calls me and at, you know, asked me about this thing called, she's like, Hey, uh, have you heard about this thing called like Bitcoin or Ethereum? And I'm like, Oh no, what did my mom find out about what I've been doing? Um, but, but it, it turned out this was right during the 2017 bubble. I was just very confused, right? Because why the hell would my mom be calling me about this system that like is cool. I mean, it's like, it was very interesting to me and I had some Ethereum because I was interested in writing smart contracts at the time. Um, but you know, it's kind of not really that usable for me. Like, mm. why would my mom know about this thing? Um, so I was worried it was for other reasons. It turned out that my mom was simply just, like, very interested in, like, this internet money. Yeah. Um, as she still is, weirdly enough. That's um, cool. But I, I don't know. I didn't think, like, anything of it other than, like, as a cool technical curiosity. Actually, my, my story with this stuff started very early, like, back when I was in, like, I guess late middle school early high school I had a really cool graphics card and you know I'd played like the coolest games that you could play on this graphics card and then uh, I realized that like I had nothing better to do and then one of my friends comes up to me he's like you know you can also do with your graphics card is you can mine bitcoin you did mine bitcoin so as we well bitcoin. <laughs> and then for a <laughs> but little was bit it kind of like a thing where you're like let's mine bitcoin you do it it's kind of worthless at the time yeah, yeah like, it's, oh, it was no. worth nothing so and it was just for fun you but. just turned it off yeah it was just so now there's some amount of bitcoin maybe because this is at the time of you know there's still mining pools but Let's just say that amount of money is probably lost uh, to the ether. I I have personally never been able to recover it. I see. All right. So the point of this episode is actually not your history with cryptocurrency, but it's rather the... Right. Sorry. <laughs> it's the, the real question is the question of math. So 
putting that aside, I almost want to understand your journey into math and at what point that intersects with what we're talking about. Oh, man. So give us a little bit of a story of like, why math? What math? When math? When math? <laughs> Who math? <laughs> um, actually, I did not really like math as its own topic for a long time. It's this weird thing of like, you know, you memorize these steps yeah. and you memorize these proofs and you memorize, actually it wasn't even proofs, whatever. I, Techniques. I, I don't, yeah, I don't want to call them proofs because they're yeah. just like writing some shit on a table and making some equivalences or some stupid thing. So to me, that was kind of, you know, what math was. It was at best, in the best of cases, I was interested in physics. In the best of cases, it was a tool to do things that you wanted to do. Mm. But it, but it wasn't really like a subject of study, right? It wasn't that interesting as its own thing. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that kind of develop. Uh, one of them actually is, is I went to, speaking of Tarun, is I went to a summer camp with Tarun's brother, Gustav, mm-hmm. and, and a few other people. But there it was, it was this weird summer camp where essentially the only thing you did for about 10 weeks was just start from scratch, like truly start from like the basics of math, like axioms and prove your way all the way to like very interesting, unintuitive results in number theory. You went to math camp. That's right. I went what to math camp. What is math camp? That, that's, that's, this is a whole other topic <laughs> okay. that uh, probably requires more sake. So maybe All right, let's later. loop back okay. after after we've drank a few of these, got it, I guess. Got it, got it, um, So, <laughs> but, but math camp is, is probably exactly as exciting as it sounds, um, which is... I once went to yearbook camp, so oh, yeah, equally okay, that, bad. <laughs> you're you're going to have to define that one for me, too, at some uh, we, point. It was a week-long thing where people who did yearbooks got together to talk about the yearbook. Oh, that's it, exciting. <laughs> I mean, that's a real thing it existed for that moment in canada i don't know why i don't know why i was there i, didn't I, was, know I wasn't were... even i was like helping on the i wasn't even like the main person i just happened to be there that's amazing yeah. well i mean it's like you know yearbook connoisseurs i guess everyone's <laughs> yeah. got to have a hobby but anyway you went to math camp so sorry, okay. it sounds like a little bit more of a bonding experience math camp there was long it was longer you it actually, was longer yeah i mean that's actually a kind of a cool exercise to get kids to go from I guess first principles ish right. or whatever building blocks really basic building blocks to show them how it works yeah so, so or it, even get them to show the teachers how it works it, like a, yes. is that how it was that's roughly it yeah okay. so, so you you really do like start from like nothing so you start from the axioms of the integers this is kind of I think a lot of uh, number theory courses in college might be taught this way not often actually not as complete as this because this was like very focused and we we're kind of doing it 24 seven as opposed to, you know, for a few hours a day. But it was weird because in a lot of ways it destroyed the, you know, my preconceptions about what math was right. And in many ways, like writing proofs is a shockingly creative endeavor. Mm. Um, it's not very mechanical. It's there's often a lot of tricks that are involved. You require a lot of insight. Hmm. Um, it's not technique. It's actually not. So, okay. so, so math kind of in in this let's let's call it this incarnation of of math you know there's there's the math that you're taught where you you learn how to add and multiply and divide and that's like those Technique. are those are what one might call algorithms right yeah. you you follow a sequence of steps you get some result and you better hope that your result is right because that's what the test is checking you on then there's kind of this you know maybe not also naive in some ways but more nuanced notion of math that it's like you are building this repository of knowledge and you are doing so by 
you know, you start from everything that you, you know to be true, these axioms. Maybe you don't know them to be true, but you certainly assume them to be true. And from there, you can build this, mm. this library of results, right? You can start developing like what it means to, you know, can you show, for example, that the zero in a integers is unique? Could there be more than one zero? Uh, that's one. Or, Were you in this case, like making proofs that's right. to prove that, that's right. that there is only one? There's only one zero. Another one that's that's a classic that's actually very interesting is how do you prove that mm. zero times a number is equal to zero? That's something you have to prove. It's kind of intuitive, mm. right? And you're kind of taking zero of something and that's equal to zero, but that's not a proof. That's interesting, though, that you say it's creative. <laughs> I guess I learned proofs very much as following it, maybe it's because I was seeing proofs being written. I wasn't necessarily making them myself. Like I would see like, what is a proof? You kind of go through these logical patterns right. until you, you know, this equals this. And then you kind of break it down into other things. And then you come back to That's it. Right. You somehow like come back at the end and be like, be, and so like we said at the beginning, this equals this. That's right. In my math experience, I feel like even though, I was really strong in math and I enjoyed it. For me, it was just sort of puzzle games. Right. I didn't, I don't think of it as, it's not, it's not that I wasn't creative, but I feel like a lot of the math education would have been a lot of memorization and just right. like being able to use techniques. And if I was listening, if you understood it, it was like super easy. Yeah. I always just found math incredibly easy. So that's the thing. Yeah. So there's a lot of things to unpack at the very beginning. I agree. Right. And in some ways, as you're taught math, math is this kind of sequence of things you do. It gets you some solution, often a solution you want, ideally or hopefully. But at the end of the day, it's nothing more than kind of a repository of knowledge that you just draw from. You like apply it to your problem, turn a crank, mm. and out you get the thing you want. You know, you want to solve a system of linear equations to know, really enough, actually, is a problem I solved not too long ago, how much milk 2% milk versus cream you should add in order to get whole milk right <laughs> it turns out the system of linear equations although you can solve it in other ways but we just set it up and solve it and congratulations you know how much milk you need to add to cream to get you know the percentage of fat that is in whole milk yeah um this is one of the possibilities of how to think about math uh, but it's very 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 different than i think how a lot of mathematicians even applied mathematicians or physicists or even a lot of engineers think about math. Actually, this starts to speak to like the interviews that I've been doing with people who are very, very much math focused. Right. The way they talk about it is not the way I've ever understood math. And right. I just to maybe finish my story on math is like I did math up until like first or second year university. Linear algebra was the last proper math class I think I did <laughs> in university. That's and a good one to do, though, to be fair. It's a good one to do, but it was like the way I did it was like I just had at the time a pretty good memory and I did well, but I didn't like it wasn't creative for me. Right. It was just like I figured out the techniques. I saw the test. I did the test. The test was good. That's it right. was not in a place like even if it was doing proofs, it would have been proofs with like a lot of help. Like the template, basically, right. that I was going through. So it never felt creative. And probably because I didn't have that many techniques to draw from, maybe, right. or something like that. But but yeah, so for me, that's where math stops. Like, that's my experience with it. And so I do wonder, like, so you're kind of saying, going back to your story, like, throughout high school, you weren't into it. Right. You were probably good at it, but it wasn't, like, not even? I was, I was not bad at it. Okay. 
But math is still consistently my low, or has been, I guess, at every test I've ever taken. Math is actually my lowest score. Oh, uh, and yet, <laughs> and I mean, and yet I do math for a living. I guess. Wow. Okay. Well, then, but at what point does math switch over? What was it for you? Was it this camp where you felt like all of a sudden math wasn't pure technique being executed in this very like easily packaged way? I think in part yes. Um, I, I did understand math as also having interesting puzzles. I guess maybe the best way of dividing math kind of in the formulaic approach versus how maybe mathematicians think about math or, or mathematicians and people who actually do math all day think about math, but we can get to that later. But the difference is maybe, you know, it's the difference between like a linear game where you have some puzzles to solve. This is kind of the formulaic approach. You know, you have a storyline, you go through the story, the story guides you kind of handholds you through a bunch of puzzles and then congratulations, you know, at the end of the story, you get your reward, which mm-hmm. is an A or whatever you like. And the latter approach, it's a little bit more like these weird open sandbox games like Minecraft or something. You know, you can build something really cool, but it is up to you to do it. Mm. Right. And it requires solving kind of weird problems that you weren't expecting to come up at the beginning. Are you in math though always looking, is it optimization? Like, is it basically the thing is using that metaphor of like the sandbox, like you could build something and it maybe does something kind of fun for you, but it's useless. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, is that also happening there? Or is it like, it's only really what you're describing if it's like optimizing something. It's like making something faster. It's making something smoother. It's it's achieving something. That's the difference. I would say there's a more nuanced difference between kind of pure mathematicians and perhaps I don't I dare say applied mathematicians, but you know, there's kind of a spectrum of of how you view math as a tool versus as an art. Oh wow. Right. Like, you know, everyone has their own daily variation of this, right? Some days you wake up and you're like, ah, oh, I am an artiste. I do math all day. <laughs> and I, it's it is my canvas that I am wow. painting on. And then some days you wake up and you're like, God, I just want this shit to work. And you know why it would work? It'd be great to work because like if I solve this problem, I get $500,000 in arbitrage, mm. right? There are, you know, and that is a spectrum <laughs> yeah, in between, yeah. right? Because like, couldn't it be like, I solve it and I feel good too? That's right. So absolutely. <laughs> or I get fame. Or you get or fame. Or it gets used. That's right. I mean, so so I would say a lot of pure mathematicians do math not because it's going to be used, but maybe you don't spend your entire life doing something if the only thing you're chasing is fame. Actually, what it almost sounds like is... And I hope we don't offend anyone in the audience here, but it almost sounds like the math as art, for people to really do it, there probably is a prize. But sure. the prize is not monetary. Yeah. It would probably be like some recognition in the scientific community. Yeah. Or some like in deep like pleasure they're getting out of that. Like some joy. Right. That like I, I think some maybe mystery. They're like, I want to know if I could do this. Yeah, and you're then they do right. that and then it's really fun for them. That's right. So so huh. it's it's I would say it's a lot of those things. So so why is math interesting surely it's you know you in a lot of ways math is a video game that you're solving in your head all the time right it's like you know the rules of the game and you all you need is sometimes a sheet of paper but often you just walk around you know the streets of amsterdam thinking about some math problem you're thinking about and you just get to play it all the time in a lot of ways mathematicians are also drawn to math weirdly enough you know we think of them as kind of isolated gremlins sitting somewhere but but in fact actually i think a lot of people are drawn to math maybe Poor not mathematicians <laughs> sorry who thinks of them that I way i don't <laughs> do you don't really no. i don't know if i believe it Okay, well, I certainly do. Okay, so. you do. Okay. <laughs> but, but actually, so math is actually a, a very social activity. 
Ah, it's a lot. I have. I mean, I have seen this in math departments that right. there is often a whiteboard yeah. and a few people standing around it. That's right. Trying That's right. to solve something, going through the steps. Yep. Others like jotting down things on their desk. So yep. I have seen that. So, but it is it is inherently kind of, you know, you don't. It's hard to do math, like truly do math and have like math, you know, TM as a thing, just by yourself. Like there are people who do sit and figure out a proof or figure out an important problem by themselves. But at the end of the day, that problem is only useful in so far as it is assimilated into math itself. Mm. And when I say useful, I, I don't mean useful in a very practical sense. I mean useful in like this, this social sense of mathematics. Like, you know, when you write a proof, you're not writing a proof to convince a computer. You're writing a proof to convince other humans that your proof yeah. is correct. And that inherently has a lot of interesting social like, dynamics about it. But also generally also, it's a social act, right? You solve problems with people. And you solve problems that are interesting to you and people as well, right? And there's things that are fashionable and drop out of fashion in math as well. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, that's not an accident, right? In a lot of ways, like, no one, you know, we like to think of the lone genius toiling away, which, which is true. I mean, there certainly are, like, brilliant geniuses that push the field. But at the end of the day, they push the field in so far as other people see it as useful and interesting. Huh. What about the history of some of these mathematicians, though? Like, if you do go back, especially, like, maybe during the time of, like, intense religiosity where, like, mm -hmm. it was kind of a bit of a dark art to right. play with this kind of thing. I mean, often it was, like, in astrology and... Or, sorry, <laughs> right, right, yeah. Sorry. Actually, it was in astronomy is where it's actually coming from. And astrology, like, actually. Weirdly uh, really? Enough. Yeah. What were they doing? So... They were like being bad, actually. <laughs> I actually don't know if they were necessarily actively being bad, right? A lot of math mm -hmm. in the you know so-called dark ages was done by priests in monasteries, right? For example, a very famous result from I, I believe it's the eleven hundreds or the thirteen hundreds um, is the fact that the sum of the reciprocals of the natural numbers, so one plus one over two plus one over three plus one over four, all the way to infinity actually is not finite. It, in fact, diverges. Mm. And it's not obvious. It, I mean, it's obvious, of course, you're now ahead of time, but if you don't have modern algebra, it's really not obvious how to show this. Um, and there's a lot of beautiful arguments. And so this was figured out by uh, some monk, actually, originally. Uh, another one that's very famous a little bit later was a solution to the cubic. So we can solve quadratics pretty easily, but the cubic, when you have, um, you know, x cubed plus, I guess, bx plus a equals zero. Mm. That's the depressed cubic, I think. Um, you can solve that. And you can write down a closed form solution for it. It's rather complicated, unfortunately. But you can do it. And that was also done by, by monks, actually. But was it accepted? I don't think it was... I mean, math had to be taught for them to be able to do this, right? Yeah. So I don't think it was actively rejected in any sense that I know of. But uh, it was certainly not common as far as i know do you imagine at that time i mean obviously you're not a math historian no, no, necessarily not, unfortunately but, but, but even like going back to that idea of the socialness and the fact that you would have it as a collaborative thing mm -hmm. do you think maybe it is like a bit of a more modern idea to be doing math together like maybe it starts with like the printing press and i mean it, maybe it starts or it probably starts earlier like the library of alexandria or something like that but like you know, once you could share these ideas, maybe not in the same room, but you're able to share it at least like in books. Yeah. And then later having academic settings where people could actually get together. Because it just in those monasteries, like those examples still seem like sort of like 
odd bird right. like characters who just got really into something. Yeah. And I've never seen paintings of the, the monks. And maybe it exists, but maybe there's paintings of the monks, like, all, you know, doing, doing math. math. Right. Maybe I, maybe I am wrong. I don't, I don't want to make that call. One day I should have a math historian on here. Yeah, and tell, yeah, that'd be fun. Set me right. <laughs> so, so, unfortunately, yeah, my, my problem with math history is that it's very easy to look, and this is just history in general, it's very easy to look back at history with modern biases. Mm. I'm about to, in, in approximately three seconds, be, <laughs> you know, doing this. But, uh, but for example, Pythagoras, right, who probably did not actually figure out Pythagoras' theorem, but someone else said, like, had a cult around math. Right? Oh, wow. Like, it was, that, that was a thing. But this is Alexandria. That's right. That's right. So, so you're absolutely right. So it there is, was there was some notion of the religiosity. Like it's not the monks, right? That's right. That's it right. It is bringing science up and like wanting to understand. Right. And, yeah, but but I think for a lot of history, you know, the, our modern preconception of math is a very social art, if I may. Right. It is presenting results to other mathematicians and things like that. But yeah, perhaps in the past it was not the case. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, math was very utilitarian right? You know, geometry was a particularly mm-hmm. utilitarian. It was interesting, right? For example, you know, Euclid's elements don't always prove things that are immediately useful in practice, like the fact that there are infinitely many primes. But in some ways, right, these things got written down for a reason and they got passed down for some reason. So it's hard for me to not assume that there was some amount of social context mm-hmm. there. I, of course, I, I'm also not a historian of math i do like to read about the history of math but i don't know much about it unfortunately I'm just realizing though as we're talking about this like why like it was so driven early on by the stars but yeah I'm like why wasn't another like there's so many physical things happening why that i i don't know egypt loved the stars and right. like all the smartest math minds or math things come from at least or they seem to often come from that like mapping stars and trying to figure out like Where how quickly gonna... something's moving and yep so um hmm. what some of it does have to do i think i suspect with this uh, astrology not not astronomy although astronomy obviously is they're kind of very related up until relatively modern history but uh, i think some of it did have to do with you know these astrological notions but uh, also generally right what's really useful when you're sailing the seas is the ability for you to be able to know where you are right and how do you do that well it's you would expect to be yeah given the positions of certain stars certain astronomical objects right so the minute it's the move to discover so i think that's in part i mean of course this is later than i think maybe some of the time periods you're referring to so i think that that one might be just more out of curiosity of the cosmos right Mm -hmm. in the same way that the infinitude of primes is an interesting thing one might wonder about the cosmos out there or whatever that meant to ancestors i don't know this is just a very much a conjecture and in fact i suspect that at least 50 percent of the things i'm saying here are like not exactly correct i also want to caveat that um, but (laughs) but, these are theories these are ideas i want to come back to what we were saying just before history rabbit hole like going back to that collaborative nature i was trying to find examples in history of like it being solo but you're saying like especially today this is not a solo activity it's actually incredibly social that's right Let's kind of come back to that point. Yeah, yeah. So so when, when I say social, I don't mean that all papers are published with someone else, although that is incredibly common, of course. Mm-hmm. But I do mean that like math as it develops is a social endeavor, right? You're only doing math if you are talking to mathematicians in a lot of ways. Uh, that sounds weird and elitist, but I, I do mean it in a very specific sense of like if you have a paper that's sitting somewhere in the shelf, 
that no one's ever seen before and no one's ever read except you and maybe your mom. It's really right? useless. Yeah, it's, it's really useless. Even if the result you proved is very interesting, it doesn't really do anything. And in particular, you want, one might not even call it math because in some sense it's not known or read or, or even can be interacted with the wider community. Similarly, if you discover some extremely mm. complicated, fancy new thing using your own standards and your own thing, that might be interesting to study as its own topic, but one might still not necessarily want to call it, you know, what what we call the refined polish notion of modern math, right? Mm. It's maybe maybe just a sparkling system of equations, perhaps. There it really does start to sound like art. Right. Like the artist who never shows the thing that's right. lives somewhere in a basement and maybe the, the house burns down and never gets shown. It's it doesn't exist in that's a right. weird way. That's right, that's right. I mean it might have been fun to do, but yeah, yeah, which is, a, I mean, it's a perfectly valid thing, yeah. right? You know, clearly some mathematicians have gone a little crazy, right? Uh, the Millennium Prize winner for proving the Poincaré conductor uh, was saying Perlman, right? Just, like, quit math, essentially. He Whoa. proved two very famous things in, in math, some of the biggest open problems, and then was just like, I am never going to do math again. So is now, like, a potato farmer, I think, somewhere in Russia or something like that. Probably and still doing a little bit of math. You you would think maybe. I mean, but but honestly, <laughs> maybe the like, crops need some yeah, like yeah. careful every every know. once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> just uh, sneak in a paper there too. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me. Look, I kind of want to go back to your story of math, though. So you were talking about this spectrum of like there is the very very you didn't say applied. What's the opposite? It's the pure maths, pure math. mm-hmm. and then you're getting more into the applied math. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to even come back to crypto, like. This is applied, I'm yes. guessing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It is what some some mathematicians might scoff at how applied it is. In fact, why? Tell me why. Um, no, I mean it's it's it's, an, it's usually a joke that um, mathematicians, you know, they I think it's from SNBC, but more generally, it's an open joke uh, of the math community. It's like, you know, someone used your result in number theory to cure cancer, and the pure mathematician yells, "No." <laughs> Why? But but the the joke essentially is like you know math is art. It <gasps> they is not. Went mainstream. It, it went they mainstream. They got picked that's right. up. That's right. That's right. That's by right. the major labels. That's right. That's not what you want. That's not what you want. That is. That is when not. you're an indie rock artist. That's right. You you would know about that, right? I believe. If I recall <laughs> that's, why, that's where I draw my my understanding of the pure maths. Um, <laughs> it's closer than you think, and I think most wow. of us want to admit. But wow, that's, fine. that's so interesting, though. Do you think that actually prevents pure mathematicians from like making some of their work accessible because of fear of it being used? Um, I, it's more in a of way a, they don't want, maybe. Yeah. So, so I guess there, there's a few things there, but but it's more of a joke in a lot of ways, right? Like I'm sure most mathematicians that do stuff that can actually be used for something would be happy to see it used for something. Mm. Ideally, socially positive things, but you know sometimes you can't control that. But more generally, or the problem is. When you're talking about pure math, you're talking about a field that is so, so specific that often it takes you many years just to get to the boundary of the field. Like analytic number theory is one example of a particularly hairy math that people spend their entire PhD to write, to understand the state of the art, and then write maybe one paper that pushes it just slightly, Hmm. right? There's kind of not really a lot of hope for accessibility there without kind of this mountain of requirements. I kind of want to talk, like, just thinking about this topic, about language in math. In that case, is it learning the vocabulary of the field that is so complicated? Or are the concepts so impossible to get into the human brain? <laughs> oh, I have a lot of thoughts about this. So, so um, 
I do think in the case of analytic number theory, that's a particularly difficult edge case. The concepts really are almost alien. Mm. A mathematician in this field would obviously say, oh, they're perfectly natural, but but in fact, they're not, right? You know, there's many paradoxes in math that kind of come up and people understand them in some weird way, but they're not intuitive. Banaktarsky is a particular example of this, right? Where it's like you can take a sphere and decompose it into five different spheres, all of equal size. It's like not a thing that you can like touch or make sense of. It doesn't make any sense, mm. right? The base ideas are simple, but the language that's necessary to express them in that simplicity is very non-trivial, right? In a lot of ways, it's it's kind of like computer science. You you build on abstraction and abstraction, abstraction, abstraction until you get to a point where it, like everything kind of makes sense. The the nice part about computer science is that you know most computer scientists don't know how a transistor works, and that's perfectly fine because the abstractions are not necessarily easily leaky. On the other hand, in math or for example analytic number theory or even more generally, not that I'm an analytic number theorist by the way, just generally speaking, but this is a particularly hairy part of math. You know, and sometimes you do depend on the fact that these things are abstracted away very many levels, but like the details really are important. Like the details of why something works just can't, you can't simply say like, oh, I'm just going to write some C code and like not worry about like how my transistor works because all of the things that you do depend fundamentally Mm. on this thing that has like very hairy requirements to work and you need to know them extremely well in order for your proof at the end of the day to work. But don't you think right there you're getting more into the applied part then? It's applied in the sense of like you're applying previous theorems, but I would say that's less applied math, I think, is more regarding like connections to the real world in some sense, rather than like applied as an applying, you know, previous theorems or things that people have developed prior to further that field in itself. Mm. Right. Much the same way that one can make derivative works of art that have no practical importance, but they're interesting derivative works of art. Uh, One does the same thing with you know, number theory and analysis and things like that. It's like you're studying it now for its own sake and you're building on people's work, but you're not necessarily applying it to some other field that might be useful. Now let's bring it back to the original topic, which is like your experience with cryptocurrency. (laughs) (laughs) Let's really, let's, I just skipped applied into silly art, not even art. What do we call it? Gambling. Gambling. Degenerate um, gambling, yeah. I might say. In fact. <laughs> okay. But let's go a little bit back to your story. I think we stopped somewhere at high school and That's right. not loving math and then math camp. That's right. And then I, I really didn't love math okay. after that for about uh, a few months because I was like, wow, this is, it is incredible and amazing. And it truly opened my eyes to it. And I was like, this is utterly inane. Ooh. Why the hell would anyone do this for a living? I wow. think it's beautiful. And I think it's interesting, but who the hell would ever do math for a living? That's what I caught out of that camp. How old were you? Uh, shit, I Sounds was like a very probably... teenage thought. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I was about between 15 and 16, yeah. I guess. I would imagine that, though. You probably just, your interests were elsewhere. Yeah. I, I was interested, actually, and for me, it was the applications of math to topics. So physics, and at the time, I think it was more like quantum mechanics and quantum computing. Mm. And that kind of, you know... That's what I found cool. I was like, I want to learn math as a tool to like solve real problems. And to me, you know, proving whether zero times something is zero is not a real problem. TM. Yeah. Um, Although probably fun exercise. Good for your mind. That's right. That's right. That's right. Like Sudoku puzzles. It was maybe just too, it was like training. It's like healthy. Exactly. It's like eating your broccoli or eating your vegetables. It seems a bit like that. Like you're supposed to do that. You need to know. I'm sure it helped you. But where uh, did you go after that? What was your direction? 
So, so you said you took a few months where you're like, eh, I yeah, I don't want to do this. So after that, I think, you know, I, I did see math as a tool and it did dawn on me that math could be very beautiful and very interesting for its own sake, although I was not interested in doing that. Yeah, so so it, it became interesting because I started learning a lot of math um, because I wanted to do things. I wanted to, you know, do quantum mechanics and I wanted to learn like analysis because I thought that was a good thing Why to did do. you want to do quantum mechanics? So I was interested in quantum computing. Yeah. I was like, this thing is the future. Yes. But I don't understand any of it. People are telling me these weird things about like what quantum computing is, how it works. And like, it doesn't really make sense, right? Like, yeah. you know, there's all these popular science articles. There's all these like cool, like interesting, you know, PBS like here is like these crazy experiments, like, but none of it really made sense. Uh, and it turns out, I, I would say no one really ever makes sense of quantum in, in a lot of ways. Like you do, you kind of just get used to its strangeness, but it's never intuitive. And huh. so in order to do that, you need math. Like you need to, you can't. Can't see it. Yeah. You can't really understand it because it kind of doesn't make sense. Like your eyes wouldn't be able to perceive that. That's just right. The most basic crazy thing is yeah. the quantum, something like Schrodinger's cat. Like two things are actually happening at the same time in parallel and only the observation will like define one yeah, as being real. It's I know like, this is very poorly yeah, yeah, articulated. That's, that's roughly the idea. It's like to the have, listener, sake glass number three. That's so right. Please give me some credit. Cheers to that. <laughs> Getting drunk and talking about math. This that's is right. This is a good life. It's, it's the only way to talk about math, one might say. <laughs> very nice. It's this idea, Schrodinger's cat is this idea of like, you know, you connect quantum behavior, the behavior of like some particle that's decaying in some box to like global behavior, this sort of this like large thing behavior. Large things here are things that don't really experience superposition, right? And it's like, oh, you know, if the atom decays, like the cat is dead, but we don't know if the atom has decayed. So like, is the cat like half dead and half alive? In, the, in, in the, that moment before right. you know. Before you open the box. Yes. It's like, does that, does, does, of course, it doesn't, doesn't make, make any sense. fucking sense. It might be a bit like the billiard ball example for zero knowledge. I actually, I'm not familiar Do you know this one? The like the red and blue? Example. I mean, it's just, oh, it's oh, basically yeah, yeah. The, just trying to simplify something. The magical color experiment. Which, but then it's like so real life right. and... Well, actually, maybe in the in the case of the ZK one, it's not so... This is pretty good, I I think. I don't know, maybe Because it is a probabilistic thing. Like, you're that's putting right. it behind your back, you're switching it a bunch of times. That's right. So, actually, no, maybe that's not the same thing. I've heard that in other cases where you're, like, you're just trying to... You're trying to explain. And, yep. I mean, I'm trying to explain. We're all that's trying right. to explain and communicate also to people who aren't as deep in it. I'm actually very pro that. But I think in the case of the quantum stuff, it's so magical when you make it about a cat in a box (laughs) that it's like but if you look at what it actually is it's like isn't it like electrons heading like a piece of paper there's like a thing right there's like an actual experiment the double slit experiment i believe i mean that's the most basic one right right. but it's like it's not a cat in a box (laughs) that's right that's right that's right (laughs) because when you say it that way it's like it sounds nothing is real unless you can see it right and that sounds like magic that's right so that's right um, yeah. Although some people would have thoughts about whether things are real unless you can see them, by the way. You should be very what? careful yeah, yeah. on who you, who you, who what, you ask. What is it? Um, does a tree falling in the forest make any sound? Make any sound. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So that's, uh, that's the question. Perceiving. Yes, it does. <laughs> because. Uh, so something about waves. Air waves are, yeah. That's right. Sound waves are created. That's right. Period. 
but but a sound you know have to be perceived in order to be sound. Anyways, but you can get down this whole philosophy. But apparently, I don't know this the veracity of the story. But apparently, the Schrodinger's cat thing is actually a an academic shit post uh, by Erwin <gasps> Schrodinger. It was a joke to explain how ridiculous he thought his own partial theory like seemed. Wow. Um, oh, that's cool. Right. Yeah, he was the one that drive Schrodinger's equation. OG and there was Twitter like, troll right that's there. That's right, right. That's right. There you go. <laughs> I, I do wonder how many like classical <gasps> results or things that we seem I weird. Know. Are just like complete shit posts. How I suspect funny. A lot. We just didn't have the same terminology. That's right. And everything was like in this very academic sense. So mm. like the world would have seen it as like quite regal and of course, important. As, as one does. I mean, I, I suspect that at some point someone's going to read our tweets or some papers or something. And by, by that I mean yours and mine, and actually think that we were being very serious uh, for some godforsaken reason or another. Wow. Or I, well, I'm I'm very bad on Twitter. You're very good on Twitter. You and Tarun are very good on Twitter. Good is a very interesting descriptor. I'm not sure I would use that. You are but. very... You show personality. <laughs> I've become an incredibly boring tweet person. I got put on a list recently where someone was like, people, you should follow. And I'm like, why? I'm incredibly boring on Twitter. You're, you're, yeah, I will say, yeah, <laughs> we you're, you're much more fun the other in, day, right? in, in real life, for sure. <laughs> But that sounds like yeah. something you could fix. I don't know. Well, should I? No, actually, maybe not. Actually, it's, it's probably better for your health know. to not, yeah, I, I, I think. Anyway, <laughs> back to math. Right. Okay. So quantum. Right. Actually, we don't have to dwell on the quantum. I think the point here is you were exploring a lot of things and all of a sudden math mattered. That's right. Okay. That's right. So math continue on this story. So yeah, because, because of this whole notion of quantum, math did seem interesting. Uh, but, but again, as a tool, as an operational tool. And, and this kind of continues certainly through undergrad a little bit. There's certain fields in math that you can say very powerful things with very little, you know, there's not really a lot of complexity. And this idea of, of simplicity, like using very clear definitions, thinking very clearly about problems appeal to me. Um, like math, not as a tool to do things, also not math as an art, but math as a way of clarifying thinking was a really, really interesting idea that I hadn't really thought of or come up with um, until I started doing some some work in, in optimization theory and, and a little bit in physics as well. It was just shocking kind of, you know, much the same way that people say, like, if you want to clarify your thoughts, write them down. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways it's the same. It's, uh, and, and this is not universally how it's used. Sometimes math is used to completely obscure stuff and certainly in, you know, these parts of Twitter perhaps – or, you know, the parts that we frequent. Uh, math can be used as very much as a, as a curtain to obscure things. But, but math is a very powerful tool to clarify exactly what model you're using, how it's being used, where it breaks down is a fascinating thing. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's kind of a drew me back to studying it in more of an applied sense. If you ask physicists what I'm doing is theory, and if you ask mathematicians what I'm doing is just utterly applied. But can you say again, I remember we did talk about this on a previous episode, the, I want to say convex something theory. Analysis. Convex, convex analysis. analysis theory. That's Just what convex you, analysis or convex theory. Or, yeah. Okay. But that's the sort of field. That's right. That's and right. I do remember we, we talked about like what that meant. Right. But are you saying right now that like that there's a judgment on this type of math? There is in a lot of ways. Yeah. So um, because my work was kind of in between math and physics it's a funny thing, right? Because the second your math kind of touches some real application in a very concrete way, it becomes very applied. Mm -hmm. um, but people who are 
in that field that you are applying math to often see math as being just purely theoretical. It's wow. being like, oh yeah, it's just like a, it's a thing you're doing and it's interesting, but Man. it's, uh, you know, it's fine. It's just, you know, until you can show me exactly the problem I wanted to solve, it's interesting as like a thing, but it is not necessarily, you know, what one might call like an important or like immediately useful result. Hmm. Do you see almost a parallel here to like an engineer and a researcher? That's right. I think I think in a lot of ways the the parallel yeah. is very very similar, right? It's like the engineer probably I mean, depending on which engineer and which researcher, of course, but on average, perhaps engineers see researchers as like working with their own toy models, mm. and vice versa. You know, researchers might see engineers as and like, those researchers who are actually working on the applied part. That's right. By their peers would be seen as very applied. That's right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Huh. So okay. So. Now we can, I think, bring it back. I know I tried earlier, but like now I think we can bring it back to your knowing Tarun, getting pulled into these problems. Right. It sounds like your early experience of any crypto is kind of just like very like, I want to play with this thing for a second. And then you That's were kind right. of bored, but you stopped being bored at some point. Like it started to actually be relevant to you. Yeah. You started working on these papers. You could actually use some of the work that you were doing. That's right. On these papers. I have a question right before we go into that, though. What's your thoughts on, like, the trading world? Like, because high-frequency trading also does cool math stuff. That's right. They do. In fact, a lot, good would, amount of my friends go and work for high-frequency trading. Would you, could you have seen yourself going that way? For a while, I did, because I was like, what's the easiest way of getting to retire and do my favorite thing? It's go work at some high-frequency trading firm, you know, deal with the shittiness for whatever five years or isn't that kind of so. sad it is in sad. retrospect like it's kind of that story of like you're gonna pay your dues in some job you hate yep. just to i make a lot of money and therefore and then you would be able to do something after you know what such the myth of that is always i think people do not understand how much that changes you that's fair yeah. like that experience if you really are in it really in it changes people yeah it can burn people out it can change your values. It changes your friends. There's an impact to those there choices. Is. And I think a lot of people f see it, the shiny. They think, I'll get through it. But they're often so young when they're making that decision. They are not, like, fully formed. And, like, shit's going to impact you. Yeah, yeah, it's true. To me, I saw it as, like, the option. You yeah. Know, as going in as, like, a person who knows a lot of optimization theory yeah. and a lot of math. And I can go and I know pretty concretely actually pretty much exactly what I would be working on. Um, and then there was a very easy path had I, you know, sticking with it to like making reasonable amounts of money and then being like fucking off and retiring, you know, at Wild. some point within the next you know, 10 years or so. The choice you took was like, that's right. Yeah. I'm well, I mean, it, it seems like it just kind of happened. Like you all of a sudden had this other path and now yeah. the math that you work on, is it, is it similar to what one would do in high-frequency trading? Yes. In a lot of ways, it's very, very similar. And yet, I'm 100% sure that the style in which you're creating this stuff and communicating this stuff is so, so different. That's right. So okay. the, the idea, I mean, convex optimization in general, and optimization theory in general, is like very, very, very common. Um, in fact, one might say it's the bread and butter of a lot of the, you know, kind of high-frequency trading, portfolio rebalancing, things like that. There might not be exactly convex, but often you solve convex versions of these problems uh, as approximations to the real thing. Um, so in a lot of ways, the you know the overarching field is very useful. But the, yeah, the style 
the thinking, you know, writing papers, all of that is very, very different. That's not really something you would do in trading unless, unless you were doing something like, like my advisor does, Stephen Boyd, who, you know, he is like the head of the AI lab and, but he's still a professor and he's mm. still, his purpose is mostly to act as an in-house consultant, but also to write interesting papers based on things he's discovered and things like that, which he continues to do. But as someone, you know, as a quant or something like that, it would be very, very different yes. than here. It would certainly not be anywhere as open. I would not be putting, you know, papers up on archive and things like that. Are you happy that you didn't end up a quant? Yes. I'm happy that I ended up a lot of things, to be fair. But certainly that's that's uh, that's one I'm particularly happy about. Do you think you could have been happy there in the math? Yeah. In some ways, I think I could have been happy. In some ways, I... I almost feel like I should have this interview also with Tarun, who did do that. Who did do that. That's yeah. right. You should definitely I mean, ask about I it. I have had a few interviews with Tarun before he was starting to co-host, and I know right. a lot of his story, but it might be fun to talk to him about that role, because I don't think I've ever actually explored it. So, uh, well, as I say, Tarun's probably might might be cringing a little bit at, at some of the stuff that I'm saying about trading, which is might might or might not be as close to his experience, you know. But generally speaking, yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm also curious about uh, Tarun's story and, and that's I've heard a little bit of it of course but we'll keep that for the next one yeah probably pick a different alcohol but <laughs> <laughs> maybe a different location right we'll, we'll get Tarun to do something like this too actually I mean even having this conversation is making me think it'd be really fun to explore a little bit more of the like the I mean one's interest in math and what they're doing with it yep. just in general I kind of want to bring it back just to math I mean we focused mostly today on like your story but let's talk a little bit about why do math like generally like I think we've now we've kind of mapped out a little bit of like there's pure there's applied we talked about the monks who maybe were really like <laughs> just keen on it but maybe to to listeners like especially listeners who might be right now thinking about what to do next why do math well the easiest and obvious and silly answer is it's fun Okay. Right. That's I've discovered earlier is a <laughs> video game. Math is fun. Math is from fun. the person who went to math camp. That's right. From the person who went to math camp. Who would have? Who would? Who would have thought? Shocking. Very good. Really. Very good. Um, you are a PSA right now. That's right. It's that's fantastic. right. I'm here. I'm yes. here being like you know to the people of the nation. To those who know something. That's right. That's right. What was actually no? There's a star. What it's the more you know. The more you know. The more you know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So so I think I have this shitty joke that I think. More kids would learn math if they were told at a young age that it's really a video game you get to play in your head all the time and nobody can stop you. Wow. Right? I mean, here it is, right? You have a fixed set of rules. You want to get to some objective. Yeah. You want to solve some problem or you want to prove something. Often it's, I think proving is, is to me the most interesting part, not just an objective. And what do you have to do to get there? You have no idea, but you have these rules and you have to put the rules together in some way that makes sense and gives you the result. And often there's some crazy insight. There are many ways of getting such an insight, but there is some crazy insight that gets you there. You know, that, yeah. like you go pretty much all the way there and you're like, crap, like there is something that isn't quite clicking and then it clicks and it's like you've solved the cool puzzle that you've been like, that has been torturing you for weeks, you know, or whatever. It's like, you know, mm. in many ways it's a, it's a, it's a video game on hard mode perhaps, Right, you often don't spend many weeks on a single level or something, and if you do, I'm so sorry. But and there's no colors. And that's no, right. Yeah. Well, there can be colors if you're if you're very creative about it. But you know, I, I I'm not. So, okay. Um, 
Yeah, so there's a whole thing about oh, yeah, whether... people who can like see colors in math. Or, that's right. They, so, they oh, think are. of a math thing and then there's a color that yeah, emerges. Yeah, yeah. So, that, you know, some people have, um, this doesn't quite happen to me, but some people definitely have like this thing where different numbers feel different. Wow. And like things that look prime will feel a certain way and things like that. I, I, I unfortunately don't have this. I, actually, for me, weirdly enough, math is very like purely visual in my head. It's like a whiteboard that I write down. Okay. And a little bit of verbal. But some people have purely visual. Some people have purely verbal. Some people have... Neat. Some people are like, I can't even like look at an equation like it's just pure geometry. Some are like, it feels weird. I'm sure there's someone who's like, oh, it tastes like ripe blueberries. <laughs> in hell? You know, like, I don't know. I mean, but okay. I'm sure it exists, right? Okay. It's weird. It's weird to say that you experience math in different ways, but very literally also not very literally generally too. But, but yeah, yeah, getting back to that. So why do math? I think the biggest reason is because it is fucking fun. It is really fun. It is really interesting. Uh, and to me, and kind of, you know, more generally, the second order reason is you get to work with, like, cool people to solve a problem together. And when you do solve a problem, it is extremely satisfying. Wow. Right. I mean, but that's... would it be different in physics? I know. I think people do physics for roughly the same reasons, too. I mean, physics... But what is the nuance there of the collaborativeness? What do you mean by the nuance? Well, think about it, like, in a physics problem, you are also getting together. I guess yep. it depends also if you're pure or applied, but... That's right. Say it's somewhere in the middle. I don't know. It's always a little more applied. Yeah, I right. Am. You're kind of dealing with something in the physical world. Yep. So you, like a group of people getting together to do physics, would be a lot of fun. I can imagine. But what is maybe unique about the math part, if you can think of it? I know you haven't necessarily lived in the physics part, but well, I, technically my PhD was in physics. Oh, so. sh- I, excuse me. <laughs> excuse me. That's right. That's right. That's right. Sorry. Then you. Can absolutely well, again, think on this. Physicists would, would tell me I did math and mathematicians would tell me oh, I did physics. Yes. But, but okay, okay. you know, I, I understand. No, don't worry. No, no, I mean, I think it's the same reason, actually. So math, it also depends, right? Like, there is a lot of math to physics. And sometimes the physics and the hard parts and the communal parts are figuring out the math. This is certainly true in the seventh, for example, in, in my PhD thesis, right? I got together with people who I was like, here is a physics problem. It turns out to be a math problem at the end of the day. But okay. it is physics. Um, but vice versa as well, right? Like often, you know, you're trying to come up with some crazy mechanism to do X, right? And you know that you have these like things you can put together, these like devices or these like, you know, processes or whatever it is in physics. Um, let's talk specifically about photonics, right? There's like certain manufacturing processes you can do. And then there's the question of like, I want to build a specific thing and I have these manufacturing, you know, these specific processes I can do, right? Like how do I put them together to build the thing I want, Right. And that's one uh, classic yeah. question that pops up a lot is like, I want to build these micro ring resonators, right? But I want them on this like very, very small thing. And I want this particular material that's really hard to work with. And I know this material has like certain things that I can do. I can etch it in particular ways. Mm. Can, so, and the question of course then is, you know, how do I do that? And that, that is another puzzle to solve in a lot of ways. Sure. But do you think, I mean, actually in physics in that regard, is it more like, are you must you then rely much more on computer processing? Because there's like just there's elements of that that one could never hold in their mind at this point, like materials and like it's just too many factors. Yeah. Or I, do you actually think that like maybe math is also at that level? This is actually yeah. a super interesting question I've been thinking about lately. But um, I think a lot of the way we work right now is you, we work on simplified models and then later test for assumptions, right? And okay. like often simplified models are close enough to correct that it's fine. To be able to figure out yourself, that's right, kind that's of. Right, okay. That's right. Or under, at least comprehend yourself. Yeah. 
even if you know the model is leaky, it's often good enough to get you to an answer. Um, the question of computation in math actually is very, very interesting. So I guess for a little bit of context, one way of looking at the thesis that I did was essentially automated theorem proving is one way to think about it is in the specific case that I was working on is you want to maximize the efficiency of the device. And you want to say certain efficiencies are impossible. There is no device that could ever be more than, for example, 90% efficient. In a lot of ways, that's a, that's a theorem, right? There's, I have a, a device. This device satisfies some physics equations, right? And then immediately what you have from that is you can try to put these equations together in interesting ways to tell you something that, you know, for example, maybe you cannot achieve 90% efficiency, right? Like maybe you can achieve 88% efficiency, but you cannot ever, by kind of combining these equations that the device must satisfy, you can show that you can never achieve 90% efficiency. So actually what the thesis is, is this weird idea that instead of having a human try to put these equations together in some interesting or important way, why not just feed the problem to a computer mm -hmm. and have the computer essentially automatically prove a theorem that says, if you put these equations together in this very specific way, I can prove to you, the human, that in fact there exists no device that will ever do better than 90% efficiency on the task you've given me. And that is in many ways a proof, right? So this is, this is the question of when does computation intersect with math? And there's a slow but sure move. And, and some mathematicians are very not happy about this. I'm also making a face as you say this. I'm like, right. it scares me a little bit what you're going on. Yeah, okay. That's right, that's right. So it, it is very weird, right? Because a lot of mathematicians and, and certainly the current modern notion of mathematics, and by the way, this has shifted through the years, but the certain current notion of mathematics is that you do math to have an insight to like truly deeply understand, you know, the mechanics of a proof. But you might imagine in some future, and this is a very minority opinion in math here, so, uh, you know, I, I will probably be shunned for this, but you can imagine in future that, you, you know, feed uh, it in. Yeah, you're just like, at a certain, you're at a certain point in your proof, it's simple enough. You say, I know a computer will solve this instead of me. I'm going to go put it into a computer. I'm going to press enter. And then the computer fills in the rest of the steps, hmm. right? And the rest of the steps don't have to be but, simple things. But actually the way you just said that doesn't sound that. If it's just filling in the steps, that's one thing. That's right. But I think there's a scarier part of that. Or like, I shouldn't say scary. A more... Scary, I think is fine. It's scary because, I mean, basically living in the space that I've been in for a while, this sense of like open source, being able to prove yourself, being able to like verify, da 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 da, -da. When it starts to be almost like black box AI, uh -huh. you don't can the human mind or in one lifetime, would you be able to actually go through such a proof? Can one person prove that that was proven correctly? So, and that is where it becomes a little bit scary. It sort of undermines that idea of like, if we can prove it, then it's provable. That's and right. And then we trust it. That's right. And so, we, in this case, is human mind. Right. Not Computer outsourced mind. to a computer. Well, so so here's the deal. I can guarantee you that the bridges that are being built nowadays are not proven by a human mind to, you know, stay upright. When you say bridges, do you mean bridges? I bridges? mean a literal bridge. Like a bridge, not, like a not bridge. crypto bridges. No, no, not crypto bridges. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I was like, like a literal what suspension are bridge. You saying, who is going under the bus? <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. Okay, okay. Sorry. Literal bridges. Like yeah, I mean, you trust buildings. a simulation yes. to correctly tell you that the bridge is going to stand. I mean, no, no one person, like surely people do look at it, right, yes. and, and verify that indeed the things make sense and stuff. But at the end of the day, we are relying on computers. Yeah. 
to simulate things and, and I make guess sure they like, stand. What you could have is like you could have human brains verify pieces. That's right. Of these models. That's right. And that the data has been inputted correctly. And That's right. And all, all that the want. outcomes are on a 99.9, whatever, like very safe. That's right. That's right. That's right. And okay. you're, you're within a you know safety factor yeah. of 10 or 5 or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, right, Wild. you're still trusting a computer, which was also programmed by people, by the way. And that's the scary part. Yeah. But you can run that. I mean, you technically, like, I could take a file. I could run it on my computer and verify that, indeed, the results were correct. And I could even, if I wanted to, I could True. write my own open source software, which confirms to, you know, though there's often a lot of standards for software, but, you know, could conform to some notion of a standard for simulations. Yeah. And indeed verifies this thing. It's the same thing with math. And, and math is kind of weird because people see it as this art of, like, understanding truly the proofs, but... There you is know. a simulation factor, I guess. There is, and there could be, right? Certainly, there's no reason why not. But there, I mean, in pure math, going back to that spectrum, mm-hmm. like right now, is there the use of simulation, or is it mostly so like actually use- still being held within a human brain, articulated by one human? Oh no, no, there's the use of, or of, like maybe a group of humans, but still human brains. So there's the use of just pure computation to solve proofs. So, for example, a very, very famous example is the four-color theorem. So the four-color theorem says that you cannot color a two D map. Or you can color every 2D map with four colors, using only four different colors, mm. such that no two no two regions of the map that are adjacent share a single color. This is that's the four color theorem. Mm. I mean, it essentially, just says you can color a map with four colors, and no no two states or whatever regions will ever share a given color. So that actual the theorem, no one knows how to prove it except by the use of reducing the true problem to about or a few million cases a finite number of cases and just checking all of them in a computer. That's the unsolvable by human brain. That's right. Case. So, so it's, it's not clear. Right. No one wow. has, no one has yet to come up with a proof that does not require computation. There are similarly other problems, mostly in sphere packing that in fact, there exists no like handwritten proof. The proof is an algorithm at the end of wow. the day. The proof is literally here is an algorithm that correctly computes the quantity I want and that is the proof. I mean, the proof is run this algorithm, check, verify this algorithm is correct, and run this algorithm on a computer. Hmm. But technically a mathematician could run it by hand, but there's no need for that, but right? Then you, I mean, you do get into this question of like, as much as I'm going like, oh my gosh, but it's like, are humans really that correct anyway? That's right. That's like, right, that's right. have we always been right? No. That's right. And in fact, so there's, like, yeah. I mean, part of me goes like, this is scary. And it's getting like outside of definitely like human control. In some sense, right? perhaps. Because you're like, it becomes something that like, we can't fix this by hand if we have to. That's right. If we rely on it. If that became something that was relied on, maybe more applied, then I don't know how or why or whatever. Right. But like, maybe not that case, but some other case where it's like, it's built more through simulation. Sure, yeah, yeah. And then it's relied upon for applied something or other. Right. Then if there's a failure... You can't go back in as a human. Right. But, but then there was either a failure in the algorithm or a failure in the implementation, right? So you would check that. That's right. But at the end of the day, we rely on these things. We rely on computation all the time, right? Like pure computation that like no human is going to solve a 10 million by 10 million matrix equation. But that's what you do every day when you're solving, you know, like basic flow problems. How do you, if one example is how do you station wind turbines so that like they're, you know, the weird chaotic effects of wind don't intersect, don't interfere with other turbines behind it. 
that's I mean that's a simulation. You can't really yeah. answer that. Similarly, I mean, you do this all the time with cars, right? And really, pretty much any most physical processes, like surely you can test them, you can build them and test them, and that's certainly what happens. But we rely on computer simulations and just computational aid to do pretty much time. everything nowadays. Like, so in some ways, it's weird and scary. It's like, is it weird if you can't intuitively explain why something works? Is that a bad thing? And and a lot of mathematicians would say that that in fact that is a that is a terrible thing. You know, of course, I I worked in a field where this is kind of the whole point, right? So I obviously have a slight bias, but I don't know if it's a bad thing, right? Imagine if like hmm. you could verify the algorithm that essentially verifies something else for you, right? If that skips hundreds of pages of steps of a proof. And all of the people you'd have to train to be able to do that That's and right. understand it. Right. Then is it worth it? I don't know. I mean, to me, the answer is kind of yes for most things. I mean, I mean, not everything, but for most things, I think if you can reduce a proof to a set of computational mm. questions, maybe it's not beautiful in a artistic sense in some ways, but I don't know. I think it has its own like share of beauty. I have sort of one last question for today's interview. All right. <laughs> like- yeah, yeah. Poor Guillermo, you're no. so jet lagged. We're talking about math and I'm asking you hard <laughs> questions, but you're a trooper. That's great. Again, the sake, thank you. Great idea with the sake, by the way. <laughs> like, I think my last thought question here is very much on the use of math in the way that we're using it. And like... We as in crypto or yes. we as in... Okay. I mean, or and zero knowledge world. It's basically like this show and a lot of the work I do is... It's so tied to like math and academia and yet it's so exciting and fun. And it's a lot of academics kind of coming out of that world going like, I'm going to look over here and spend some time over in this part of Mm -hmm. the space, which goes against a lot of the traditions of like living a little bit cloistered, (laughs) excuse the throwback (laughs) to the monks in, in academia. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to figure out is like in bringing them out of this, I feel like we're in a way like accelerating it. Like it's making it incredibly cool and fun and neat. Like you're hearing from those folks in a space that's booming and all these new people are arriving. But do you think there's also a side of this that's kind of like diluting the quality (laughs) or almost like undermining (laughs) a lot of the crystal palaces that have been created? So... I mentioned before that math is kind of a social endeavor. And and I, I do mean that, right? Like math is written to be understood. There's kind of two answers to the question that I have. The first is, no, I don't think it's something. I think doing more math is very cool, mm. right? And like the more math you can do, the cooler it is because that's the point. But right? can you do bad math? What I do think, and this is kind of generally true, and this might sound a little bit, I don't want to say elitist, but like kind of silly, is that there are people who are very like smart and they're very good, but by not having kind of a, a certain training, and I don't mean a certain pedigree as in like being like, oh, like you are from this fancy institution. I do mean like a certain training of like the language and like a certain notion of how to write and how to have like a specific clarity of thought. You can end up with these weird kind of things where you, you know, you can write a paper that isn't fully intelligible or like maybe doesn't prove what you think it proves or maybe it doesn't prove what you want it to prove. And that's hard, right? Like I wouldn't say it dilutes math in any way. I think math kind of stands on its own mm. and independent. And that's the whole thing of whether math is created or discovered is a whole other story. But I do think like 
you know, on average, like people who kind of come out of the edifice, right? They've been post-selected to be part of the edifice and therefore have this kind of social context of like, how do you explain math? And often, you know, how do you think through math? How do you like write it? How do Mm. you present it in a way that it can be understood? And I think it's true of any language one might say is like, as an outsider, you might think you're like, you know, going through the motions, right? Exactly. But it is very, sometimes very, very difficult Like there are certain details that appear as details that are actually extremely important. For example, in explaining why a certain mechanism works or how to, how to perhaps, you know, compartmentalize certain parts of math. Hmm. And it's not to say that that can't be learned or like anything like that. uh, But it's just like, there are certain kind of, you know, lessons you learn from kind of being knocked around many, many, many times. Right. That like do involve you, like, you know, your first presentation as here as example as a PhD student. Again, I'm not a mathematician myself and certainly, you know, people wouldn't call me a mathematician. But your first presentation is always like kind of a failure. Right. At the end of the day, like your professor is always going to be like or, you know, whoever you're working with will always be like, look, you explained this, but like you've totally forgot to do like X, Y and Z. And you're like, why the hell does anyone care? Like that's kind of a detail. It's like, no, no, that's really important. And then you go talk to other people who saw that and they're like, yeah, you kind of miss that. Like, that's a really important detail, right? It's this thing that it's not a requirement, right? But it is like, Mm. at a certain point, you, you like accumulate these very small things that turn out to make presenting, writing, even understanding in a lot of ways. I would say writing and presenting clarify your own thoughts, you know, much easier for everyone else to understand, right? And so this is, this is kind of where the crackpot, you know, all the way to the end goes in where it's like, you know, it's very easy to also go all the way to the opposite side and be like, you know, no one understands me because like you guys are in, stuck in your own castle and you yes. don't want to like learn the things that I'm teaching you, you know. Or it's like, I don't want to learn the language you want me to speak. And That's right. I, but yet my ideas are very, very good. That's right. And so it goes both ways. Yeah. Right. And certainly there are people who are very much in the castle and are like, you don't, you know, unless you know exactly how to speak our language, you are like, will not be allowed in. There's the opposite case of like ideas is should be just based on their own merit and like, but like, look, if I have to read a 10,000 word dictionary in order to understand yeah. like even what you're talking about, like at a certain point I have to, you know, there, there has to be some like, for sure, you know, you have to cut your losses and, and similarly I, the other way too. I think the scariest part is even bringing in that computation side of things. Like once right. you start to outsource this right, and then you have folks who maybe don't fully either understand or be able to express themselves using tools that have never been documented in that case. An algorithm's not going to understand that. There's not going to be the nuance of like, I mean, maybe eventually, but for now, there's no nuance of the language being similar to, I figure. I mean, in a lot of ways, the parallel I can draw is like, that people say you should write your own crypto as an exercise, but never roll your own crypto. I would say it's the same, you know, vibe perhaps is the, maybe the closest term I'm trying to get to. You know, there are, there are certain things that are like really not obvious, right? Even if you have a really good idea, there are a lot of things that are really not obvious in order to make that idea work or to explain that idea or to do that. And um, certainly, you know, even though you might have a correct idea that is useful, it does not necessarily imply that the way you're doing it or the way you're explaining it or the way you're programming it is the right way, mm. right? There's a lot of thought that has been given to like standard crypto libraries, for example. Um, and so in many ways, you know, like, Academics in some ways are, are a little bit right and distrusting kind of like outsiders. I guess the best way is it is 
infinitely easier to generate bullshit than it is to refute it. I know. Right. And that is really hard, <gasps> but vice versa at the same time, it's like, it's also really easy to put up these stupid guidelines that are like, oh, you must like blah, blah, use blah. the right note. And like, and I run into this all the time. Like as someone who literally does lived this. Lived through it and went yeah. through it. You have a PhD. You did it. That's You've right. But even so, that I have, there, you know, I've had many academics tell me like your presentation is too informal. Wow. I know I'm, I'm someone who, you know, knows the measure theory. Someone comes and asks me, does your series converge the right value? And in fact, can you justify it by, you know, using the weak star topology? I'm like, yeah, I could tell you, but who gives a shit, yeah. right? Also, do you want an audience of one or do you want That's an right. audience of many? But actually there is an alternative. There's the flip side of this that I think we didn't mention yet, which is the use of math and math terminology and big math terminology as a weapon. That's right. Or as a obfuscation or right. as a status play. I see this all the time. So I would say this because, is... Because, and I've seen it since 2017. Right. But in 2017, when I started in this space, like I didn't actually know that much about this space. So there was a lot that I couldn't fully read as correct or incorrect. It was just very, it was over my head. Yep. I often had to rely on friends people who had been in the space for a long time who actually understood engineering a lot better than I would. I'd show them something, they'd be like, yeah, that's impossible, and they're not doing that. Right, right, right. And, and it's ridiculous. Mm, and no those way. words don't exist in our space. Right. Other times they'd be like, it's possible, it's going to be hard, not sure that group will be able to do it. But early on, it required a lot of like asking around and yeah. finding out what other people who had been in the space longer thought. But now, and I still don't think I'm on the engineering front able to vet <laughs> stuff, but like... I am used to language more in our space. And right. then I do see sometimes teams use language that looks really familiar to stuff that we talk about maybe on the show, but that isn't. Yeah, that's right. And it's then I'm the one way. who's going like, oh, interesting. Like sometimes it's like it isn't, but it's interesting. But sometimes it's like it isn't, but they're trying to use terms that most people won't understand in order to sell something that I don't think is what they're trying to sell. That's right. Or they're just scammers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, Absolutely. And that's something, it's also interesting to try to explain that to people who are joining the space now because they're where I was at in 2017 where you're like, it looks really interesting and <laughs> complicated and it says stuff that I think I've heard somewhere, maybe even on your show, <laughs> but I don't know how that all fits together. And you're like, yeah, but that's also bullshit. Like sometimes right. it's bullshit. Sometimes it it's actually malicious almost. That's it's right. people who maybe know better or they're just... They're just literally like copy pasting stuff with yep. words. Yeah, yeah. It's branding. It's insane. It's marketing. Yep. It's not real. That's right. And yeah, that's something I think that's when I mentioned this diluting part. It's almost like undermining. Yes. Basically by bringing it into the, oh gosh, am I going to say this? But like bringing it into the public sphere <laughs> out oh, yeah. of the ivory tower. Right. Not even that the actual math gets misused or bad math gets created, but rather will like all that has been constructed to explain itself to itself be muddled. That's right. Yeah. Be like obfuscated with weird definitions. And, and it, this is absolutely true. And this is, this is where a lot of, you know, a word is useful insofar it is defined correctly. And, you know, there's, there's also weird things about that too, but mm. that whole debate comes in too. Right. And kind of... <laughs> It's a really difficult, tricky thing, right? Because language generally, terminology, ideas can be co-opted to do things that are not intentionally what they were supposed to do initially, right? And this is this is true certainly with with math and 
And in particular, it's, it's very, you know, a classic filter, right? It is less of a job of understanding and more of a job of defending, right? Like you have to have a heuristic for which you judge, you know, the enormous amount of bullshit that is coming at you at every point in time. And often the heuristic is simplistic and it's silly, but it works 90% of the time and that's good enough, right? And a heuristic often is, are you using the right terminology in the right way, mm. right? And to some people, again, that will seem like Elitist. Elitist. And which is, it's true. And it can be used in an elitist way, unfortunately. Yeah. But similarly, you know, you're bombarded with like incredible amounts of bullshit all the time and you have to be able to filter it. You know, you can't take the time to understand every crackpot email that comes to you telling you like, I have solved like X, Y, and Z problems which are obviously like not even often they're not just unsolvable. They're like not even problems. They're just like properties of the thing. And the sad thing is one of those emails might actually do something really cool and you might ignore it. So to me, the solution here is give tools to translate. That's right. But like really what I spend time thinking about and working on is is basically like bring people in to this space as well as you can without the need for the formal education. That's right. But like get them in touch with people who do at least present some of this stuff so that if, say, in that group of random ideas, there's, like, a great one, that, that they don't, you. like, lose interest. Right. But rather, like, reframe it That's to right. be able to communicate it better. Yeah. To people who might be able to help them, like, really bring it into a space that a lot of people could understand it. Yeah. That's kind of the only solution, one might say. Yeah. And, uh, and at the end of the day, it's only a partial one because, you know, of course, there's always going to be more stuff produced. But that is, I think, the best anyone can hope to do, right, is, like... It's not to purely, you know, gatekeep or whatever, yeah, but yeah. it's it's purely like, you know, there is a thing that exists. There's a knowledge base that exists. There's a notion that exists. There's a community that exists. And it's, you can shout separately from the community and the community can shun you or whatever the hell. Uh, or there's, you know, some nice, beautiful connection Way between to the connect two. It. Right. And it's not easy. It's really fucking hard one, yeah. I actually say. You know, everyone has their own stupid norms and like whether those are good is a whole other story. There's egos getting in the way. people are on tracks and they think of status in a certain way and then someone achieves status in a different way. It's really confusing to people. They get really angry. They've dedicated their whole lives. Yeah. Why is it different over there? Yeah. Like why would anyone say anything else? Yeah. And intrinsically the whole medium is a lossy medium. Right. It's it's a medium where mistakes get made in communication and sometimes people get angry for stupid things that are actually completely irrelevant or things like that. And so that's, you know, at the end of the day, right, like, you know, bringing it back to math, math is done by humans Mm -hmm. and for humans. Right. Like you don't do math if not for humans. Like why do you do anything if not for humans? But like very generally, even like math is a like a set of social thing. Right. And, you know, the best thing you can do to bring people into the space, I think, is not necessarily like you know, be like, oh, go develop your own ideas or whatever. It's very much like it's a community. Come you are, with us. Yeah, come with us. Like, Share let's hang out. Thing. Find ways to connect that's right. your ideas to our ideas. And that's the fun part, I would say. It's one of the most fun parts of math. And so is like finding a community that is excited to, you know, listen to your harebrained ideas, which like somehow people still do with mine. Amazing. For some godforsaken <laughs> reason or another. But like, you know, Because right? you're good at Twitter. Ah, that's right. That must be it. I think yes. that's what it is at the end of the day. <laughs> All right. I want to say a big thank you to Tarun's alt for coming on the show. <laughs> Just kidding. Thank you, Guillermo, no, for no, this incredible you. conversation into 
I mean, we went to places. There's a few things we didn't get a chance to talk about, which are like new ideas that you're actually working on. That's right. But given that you are a repeat guest and I have a sense you will be on again soon. If you'll have me at least. Uh, I think so. Mm, um, okay. <laughs> Careful think, what you're setting yourself up for. Yeah, it's true, 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 true. No promises. But <laughs> right, maybe, right, fine, fine. maybe, maybe, next, if maybe I'm really nice. next time, maybe we can talk about what you're actually working on right now. <laughs> That's much less fun, I think. Still, yeah, I really appreciated this. It was cool. <laughs> Thank so you, thanks. by the way. Thank you to the team at ZK Podcast and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.